0: Welcome to this year's glittering Shambhala podcast series from our Adventures in Utopia, where we'll be bringing you the finest of wise words, revolutionary ideas, and beautiful stories spoken under the canopies of the 2018 festival. In this first episode, Documentary filmmaker James Jones reminds us that to understand what a utopia looks like, it's pretty useful to understand what a dystopia looks like. Thank you. I hope this isn't too depressing. I have to say, like my line of work is basically misery, but um, I hope it doesn't put you off too much. Uh, when Jesse asked me to do a talk about my travels, it took me a while to think of the subject, kind of what ties it all together. And she told me the theme of the festival was adventures in utopia. And utopia is not really a word that can be ascribed to any of the places that I go. Uh, I'm obviously drawn to misery on some level and end up going to places where they're quite repressive and I'm not particularly welcome. So, bear with me. Uh, Preparing for this talk, thinking about the places I've been, kind of crystallized in my head what it is that makes these totalitarian states survive. Often they do present themselves as the perfect place, the perfect society, a utopia, and create a bogeyman, an enemy, that has to be feared and destroyed. I've seen the pattern again and again. When we think of dystopia, we think of 1984, Handmaid's Tale, Clockwork Orange, and there's something they all have in common, and that's controlling the population through fear. So I'm going to talk a bit about that, and about how some of these nightmarish scenarios aren't as far From our reality as we might think. I'm going to start talking about a film I made in Ukraine in 2014. I turned up in Kiev in the middle of winter. Uh, It was minus 10 degrees. I spoke a bit of Russian. I had a camera, had no fixer or translator. And on Independence Square, Maidan, there were thousands of protesters camped out in these Arctic conditions and all kind of dressed up like kids imitating some like medieval battle, wearing kind of bike helmets, knee pads for skateboarding, and these kind of strange wooden shields and hockey sticks. Um, And one day, out of nowhere, the security forces opened fire on them, and the unarmed protesters tried to take cover behind their wooden shields. It's actually the only place in the world where people have died clutching EU flags. Almost 100 people were shot dead by snipers in one day. I turned up the day after, thinking, you know, with impeccable timing, thinking I've missed this kind of historic event. But actually that day, the the Russian president, the pro-Russian president they hated, uh, fled to Russia in a helicopter with his tail between his legs. So I arrived, you know, it felt like victory. It was a strange mixture of grief, at the dozens of of their friends, the fellow protesters who'd been killed, and joy that the revolution had succeeded. But as so often with these situations, the joy was short-lived. Russian President Vladimir Putin in the neighboring country couldn't allow the revolution to succeed in case it gave his own population some some ideas. So he started pumping out propaganda on Russian television, um, which is watched by the Russian speakers in the east of Ukraine. And for many years, these Russian speakers had lived completely peacefully with the rest of the Ukrainian population, with no problem at all. And the protesters, who as far as I could see were optimistic, pro-Western young Ukrainians who wanted a more modern country, were presented on these TV reports as neo-Nazis who wanted to wipe out the Russian speakers in the East. So I went out to the East to kind of see what the situation was and found that people genuinely feared for their lives there. They thought a swarm of Nazis was gonna come from Kiev and kill them in their beds. And what shocked me over the weeks that followed was how quickly people lost their humanity. These pro-Russians would attack protesters in the streets and you would literally see a teenager with a broken leg, covered in blood, trying to drag—this is really depressing—I'm sorry—but trying to drag himself up the steps outside a metro station, and a babushka, like a grand—a grandmother, an old woman who ordinarily might tell you off in the metro for having your shoelaces untied, but nothing worse—would rush down, clutching her handbag, to give this this teenager a kick. And in a matter of weeks, people who'd lived happily side by side, neighbours, friends were suddenly so overwhelmed with fear that they no longer even saw each other as human, but just as a threat. I filmed this grim descent into what felt like madness, often being threatened myself, slightly wishing I didn't understand what they were saying. People saying they were going to break my camera or maybe break me if I didn't stop filming. Ultimately, it became a film about hate, and for me it was an eye-opening, depressing and scary experience. As if that wasn't bad enough, I then turned my attention to North Korea. Um, We we see North Korea as kind of cartoonish. It's like funny haircuts, nuclear rockets. Donald Trump calls Kim Jong-un, Little Rocket Man. I'll talk a bit more about him later. But it's a brutal place. Probably the closest thing we have to an absolute totalitarian state. Like we see in dystopian novels like 1984. Making a film in North Korea is obviously not easy. Uh, it's the most isolated country in the world and filming freely is just impossible. And we didn't want to go in as tourists, as people have done before, because you only really see what they want you to see. Um, you have a minder with you at all times. So we knew we had to work with ordinary North Koreans if we were going to see what life is really like. So we found some very brave North Koreans who were willing to film secretly using undercover cameras that we smuggled into them through China. And. I mean, morally and ethically, it's a very difficult place to make a film. You know, we had to be sure... Communicating with these people was very difficult, and we had to be sure that they were the right people taking these risks for the right reasons and really understood what was at stake. If if they were caught filming secretly, they would be shipped off to a labour camp and possibly with their whole family. So as a filmmaker... For me, it was a, a unique situation to be in, that I was asking these people to take a risk that I wasn't willing to take myself, and it was, it was, it was difficult. Uh, what their cameras showed was basically a country that seemed to have used 1984 as a how-to guide. North Korea uses propaganda to create a cult of personality around its leaders. North Koreans genuinely worship and adore their rulers. They thought that Kim Jong-il, who's Kim Jong-un's dad, didn't go to the toilet. Every house has a, has a portrait of him and his dad in their sitting room, and it works. You know, it was hard, it's hard to understand the concept as an outsider that you'd be so adoring of your rulers, but if all you get is state propaganda, it really does work. And like 1984, central to their survival is the control of truth. So we filmed with one guy who'd been a political prisoner in a camp in North Korea, who escaped to South Korea, and now, incredibly, spends his life going back across the border from China smuggling in DVDs of American movies and South Korean soap operas because he thinks that's the best way of breaking the spell of their propaganda. And he's right in that lots of the North Korean defectors who managed to escape have these stories of the moment they realized North Korea isn't the best country in the world. And it was usually watching some terrible American movie like Bad Boys. Our cameras also captured street children and images of starvation poverty, of course, another way of keeping people down. North Korea only separated from the South two generations ago, and already the average height of a North Korean is two inches shorter than a South Korean. Like many dystopias, they've also created an enemy. In this case, it's America. They live in a permanent state of paranoia, and they believe that Americans kill babies for fun and are constantly plotting North Korea's destruction. So after that, that was cheerful enough. I then turned my, te- my attention to another country with a similar attitude to human rights. But this time it was a country that's our ally, Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, unlike even North Korea, doesn't allow tourists in. So again, we had to work with a network of activists inside the country. The advantage of Saudi Arabia is the technology is more advanced, so people have mobile phones, so can film on their cameras. We also uh, smuggled ourselves in this time. We, po- we set up a fake company, like a cyber security company, called CyberSafe UK. I know nothing about cybersecurity, but somehow we got away with it. Um, and actually, even before we'd set foot in Saudi Arabia, I thought we'd been caught. So I had a, like a hidden camera inside my, it looked like a, a battery charger for my iPhone, but it was a hidden camera, and put it on the desk where the guy was checking my passport. And immediately he looked at it and said, what's this? And I kind of picked it up and like, apologized in a very English way and put it in my pocket and basically pictured the next 10 years of my life in a Saudi prison. As it turned out, he then got out his cracked iPhone and was like, I'd love a case like that. You know, so it's was like, <laughs> we, got, we got away with it. Um, Saudi Arabia is not so much 1984, it's more like The Handmaid's Tale. Basically a modern Gilead. It's like a puritanical, patriarchal society where women are essentially still men's property every woman is assigned a male guardian and needs permission from a father brother or even son to travel study marry or get access to government services women are lashed for getting pregnant out of wedlock uh, and lots of the women who are in prison are there because they defied their male guardian like north korea they have a strong cult of personality The rulers are presented as the guardians of Islam, and are presented as almost godlike themselves. When Donald Trump went there recently, he loved it because there were every every road he drove down from the airport was just lined with, you know, hundred feet portraits of Donald Trump's face. He was in heaven. So why can't we have that in America? And our our network filmed on their mobile phones public punishments, kind of like in *The Handmaid's Tale*. Bloggers who questioned their rulers being lashed in public squares protesters being hanged, and sometimes their bodies then crucified after their deaths. Uh, They also created an enemy, but their enemy is internal. It's women's rights, homosexuality, people of other religions like Christians and Jews, and even other branches of Islam. Right now, I'm just finishing a film in the Philippines about the drugs war. And there, uh, President Duterte came to power on a populist, strongman platform promising to wipe out drug pushers. It was basically the central theme of his campaign was to kill drug pushers. During his campaign he said, Hitler massacred three million Jews. Now there are three million drug addicts. If Germany had Hitler, the Philippines can have, you know, me. 4,000 people have been shot dead so far in his drugs war in, in almost two years. And we filmed with the police as they went out on drug operations and justified their killing with shocking honesty. The surprising thing for me there was not only that the police believed what they were doing was totally righteous, but a lot of the society did as well. Basically, the propaganda had worked. So Duterte's propaganda persuaded them that drug pushers are pests, a word that you hear again and again in these countries when they're trying to dehumanize a section of society. And now, lastly, I come to America. So I went to Portsmouth, Virginia, to make a film about a police shooting, as Jesse mentioned. I found a town that was 50% white and 50% black, split down the middle on racial lines. A white cop had shot an 18-year-old black kid coming out of Walmart at 7.30 in the morning. From lawyers to eyewitnesses to jurors, they saw the event, this kind of two-minute incident in a, park, in a parking lot, in a completely different way, depending on their own race. So the jury was eight black people and four white, and it was split entirely along those lines. So the, the white jurors thought he was, the cop was innocent and the black jurors thought he was guilty. Now, whatever you think about the that situation, that's not a justice system that's working. Uh, eventually, they did go on to convict him of manslaughter, but I would say that had the, the makeup of the jury been the other way around, and it had been eight white jurors and four black jurors, he would have been acquitted. Uh, the film was broadcast a week before Donald Trump was elected president. It's a man... Who made his entry onto the political stage by championing a conspiracy theory that Barack Obama is a secret Muslim immigrant? He's president because he capitalized on the fear that I've been talking about in all these other places. He stoked that fear. So, immigrants, terrorists, attacks on the police, and slightly more subtly, although not that subtly, black people are all molded into one threat. So, people need a strong man to protect them, they need a wall. And the wall is an almost North Korean concept. The outside world is a scary place. Mexico is full of rapists. London has no-go areas. Even Sweden is scary in Donald Trump's world. And once you start thinking of outsiders as less worthy than your compatriots, as people who infest your nation, then it becomes very easy to treat them brutally. It even got me thinking, making this film in the Philippines, how many of the cops I filmed in America if Donald Trump turned around tomorrow and said, we've got to kill all the drug dealers, how many of them would act on it and start executing people in the street? And there are many who would, I think. We live in unpredictable times when populists like Donald Trump are becoming the norm rather than the exception. And actually, dystopian fiction is having a renaissance. I guess in dark times, people turn to like, the darkest escapism to help us brace for the worst and maybe find a way to avoid it. We're now in a situation where the American president's closest advisers are being locked up for corruption and possibly collusion with a foreign power. And he may even use his presidential pardon to to free them and subvert the justice system. Even two years ago that would have seemed like a mad fantasy. My travels have shown me that toxic rulers can destroy the decency of a society and turn people against each other. And we need to be very careful that we're not next. Thanks to James and thanks to you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.